to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. It's toward the end of your Bible, right before the book of Genesis. Um, When I played uh, football in high school or in younger grades played soccer, one of the things we do before our games uh, or at the end of halftime before we're getting ready to go back out on the field or sometimes right before the first fourth quarter is we'd all kind of circle up. You know, you get in that huddle and you got one person, maybe it's the coach or the captain who is just the... uh, the one to get all the energy going, right? And you get all your hands in the air, you kind of start jumping together like that, and and the adrenaline gets going. And what you're reminded of in those kinds of uh, encouragement moments is that this game is not just about me. Uh, It's it's not about me as whatever position I played. Uh, It's not just about me with whatever my name was, but this is a team sport. We're here for the team to be able to strive to play our best together each each, in my case, each man, each guy playing for one another, or, or in ladies' sports, each lady playing for the other lady on the team, everybody trying to do their best to help the team win. <clears throat> and so uh, as John is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, First uh, John here, he, he's writing and encouraging them in their faith. And and uh, the, the word you is many times throughout this book, but it's plural. He's, he's writing to the church, not just one individual. And, and so as we read this, or as we read any letter of the Bible, it's very easy for us to read it in sort of an individualistic sense. It's the cultural waters in which we swim. Um, each each um, it's not quite this crass as each man for himself, but, but each family focuses on themselves or each person on his or her own spiritual growth. And it's easy for that to even unintentionally become disconnected from the whole. And John is always writing, the apostles are always writing to build up the church, the corporate church with a capital C church, which means uh, all Christians around the world, the capital C church. At times, we're focusing in on the church at Oak Grove, Oak Grove Church. Because this is who we are as our local church that meets together as a body. But we feed into the larger church in this county and community. And, and, and so it goes. And so he's writing. And it's important that we remember everything that, that he's talking about in here. We want to hear as individuals who can make a difference in our local context. And if enough people in our local context work to make a difference from Oak Grove Church, it will make a difference in the church in Benton County. And if enough churches in Benton County are working together to make a difference for the kingdom of Jesus in Benton County, it will feed out into Iowa and Iowa to the United States and the United States to different parts of the world. And that's how the Lord designed the body of Christ to work together. And it's important that we bear this in mind as we read, because it's, it, it's it's very easy for us to slip back into, well, this is hard for me, so it doesn't matter, but there are brothers and sisters in Benton County and around the world for whom what we're learning matters very much because he's talking about praying and confidence in Christ, which empowers uh, believing prayer. And so it's important that we guard ourselves from idols. And if we think, well, I'm offended by what he's saying today, and shrink back, we do a disservice to Christians in Benton County and around the world. And John is saying, no, be encouraged, brothers. Be encouraged, sisters, in the work that God is doing in you. And in that confidence you have in Christ, you'll be led to prayer. 
And because we're led to prayer, because prayer is necessary for believers in, in, in your home, in your church, in your county, in your state and around the world, it's important to guard yourself from idols. Because idols will just throw everything off the rails. And when things get thrown off the rails in your own heart, in your own life, well, it affects believers in your family, in your church family, in the county, in the state, in the United States, and around the world. Let's read together 1 John 5, 13 through 21. We'll be focusing on the second half of this passage. Uh, but as I said last week, this is part two of a, a two-part sermon. And so um, we will uh, just read the whole passage in its context. And then we'll focus this morning, kind of beginning verses uh, 18. And in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. God will give him life to, the, to, the, to those who commit the sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that, there's, that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. Or I'm sorry, there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children. The points we looked at last week is that we have eternal life. Eternal life is in knowing a person, Jesus. Jesus, as we just read in verse 20, is eternal life. When you're confident in your salvation, which God wants for you, God wants you to be a confident child. Parents, just think about how much you would want to convey in those moments when your kids doubt your love for them. How much you would just want them to know how much you love them. The discipline you bring to them isn't because you don't love them, but especially because you do love them. But there are times they're tempted, challenged to think, oh, you don't love me because you're making life hard for me. No, no, it's because I love you that I have to make life hard hard for you for a season that I have to sort of shrink your world and help direct your perspective for this time. So it's important that we know we have eternal life, that we are confident in this. And secondly, that God answers prayer. God answers prayer. Remember the quote from R.A. Torrey last week, prayer is the key that unlocks the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God has and all that God uh, is, is at the disposal of so remember, our prayer, the effectual nature of our prayer or the effectiveness of our prayer is, is conditioned on, on three things. One is that we keep his commandments. 
Now, lest you think, oh, so I have to keep God's commandments perfectly. No, then you miss the nature of God and the fact that we need a savior to begin with. But that we're living a life, generally speaking, where we're walking with Christ and we're striving to keep the commandments of the Lord. And secondly, we're living to do what pleases him in faith. 1 John 3.22 brings out these points. Verse 14 here says that we're walking according to his will or that we're asking according to God's will. And so we're praying and we're praying boldly. We're not timid. Oh man, I hope I guess what God's will is. No, we say, God, this is what I beg for. This is what I ask for. And I pray that my heart would be in tune with you according to your word, what you've revealed in scripture, not just what I'm feeling about God, but what God reveals about himself in scripture. I know enough about God from him in his word that I'm praying. And I'm fairly confident that what I'm praying is in direction according to God's will, because it's eternally focused. And I think it aligns with God's will to the best of our abilities, but we submit ourselves to the Lord all the time and say, Lord, If it be your will, if it be your will, would you bring healing? If it be your will is not, is not someone who has a lack of faith throwing it in there because they don't know if God will do what they want. No, no, it's a, it's an ongoing effort to continually align ourselves to God's will and submit our desires, what we think seems best to the will of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would do this, but I know that whatever you will will be best. And so it's ultimately that that I'm seeking. Today, we're going to see that God has given us ultimate victory over sin. We belong to God, our father, and that we know what is true because we are in him who is true. And so we must guard ourselves from idols. And it's my prayer that you'll see how this all fits together and all points toward one direction in our efforts to pray as God has called us to. So God has given us ultimate, and the evil one does not touch him. The evil one does not touch him. So where does this confidence come from? Confidence comes from uh, abiding in Christ, which leads to new patterns of righteous living. Now there's a, there's a challenge for us in our relationship with the Lord. The, 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 the first is, or one of them is, that, that we sometimes will live life running on the fumes of our past faith. I like what one brother said this morning in Sunday school. Kelly said, sometimes we reminisce about the past, but we're we're not called to reminisce about the past. We're called to remember. uh, I know I'm not saying it like Kelly did, but remember who God is and, and think on, recall what God has done in the past, which fuels us forward for faith or in faith. And so if we're just living off the fumes, I remember one time I pulled into a gas station. I knew I was, so, okay. Sherilyn grew up in Canada and, uh, and there you can have like 90 miles before the next gas station. I've always lived where there being gas stations within, uh, not very, uh, within not too long of a distance. And so one of the challenges for us in our marriage, um, we just celebrated 17 years and, uh, a week ago and she, uh, just had a birthday yesterday. So, um, anyway, we, um, one of the reasons that, um, one of the ways God has helped us in our marriage, learn how to know one another and, and honor each other is through our gas tanks <laughs> more than, you know, and, um, I like to see how orange the light can get. It's just like a personal challenge to me. I don't know why I just do. Right. It's like, come on, I can. Oh, I can run to the store and then back, and then next time I'll swing by the gas station. And um, Sherilyn, 
early in our marriage would say, uh, I'm saying early in our marriage because I've changed my ways. Early in our marriage, for like the first, you know, five or seven or 16 years of our marriage, she would say (laughs) things like, we're almost out of gas. Or even more dramatically, we're out of gas. I'm like, there's almost three quarters of a tank. She's like, yeah, but where I used to live, I'm like, I'm tired of hearing about where you used to live. Well, one time when I was in college, I literally rolled into a gas station and my car died. Somehow I got to the tank on fumes. Sometimes we live our Christian life like that. We, we, we live and we go, oh, I can go just this one next challenge. I can go this next day, week, month, year without abiding in Christ. And we're living off the fumes of former faith rather than living in the confidence of present, present promises for future grace by abiding in Christ. You see, we don't abide in Christ just when we need something from the Lord. We abide in Christ because we know it's through Christ and by abiding in him that we live because Jesus is eternal life. And so confidence comes from abiding in Christ, which leads to new patterns of righteous living. In other words, when you base your confidence on a a former decision or a former baptism or a former act or a former uh, situation or experience with the Lord, but don't see fruit growing in your life now, you might have a false confidence. And you know what happens when people have a false confidence They overcompensate like they've got a really strong confidence. If you find yourself needing to beef up your confidence or the appearance of your confidence in the Lord to others, it's an indicator, it's a dashboard light to you to say, you know what I would encourage you? The Lord would say, the Holy Spirit would say, don't live off the experience of past faith. Live off the promises that you have today. Abide in me and you'll find your joy. John says uh, in 1 John, he said, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. What John is doing in these last verses, he's sort of uh, uh, reminding himself. He's saying, remember when I said this not too long ago? Remember this part of the letter not too long ago? Remember? And it's just a short letter. I mean, if we were to pull this out of an envelope and, and just read it, it'd be maybe two pages long, maybe, you know, depending on how we write on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, maybe, maybe three, three pages, something like that. And we'd read the letter in about 15 minutes. And so in about that span of time, he's saying, you remember what I said about five minutes ago, right? That's how quick our memories are to forget things, right? So I want you to see the argument that he's making here. He's saying God's seed, since God's seed, which is the, the new nature, which every believer has through the power of the Holy Spirit abides in the Christian. Since God's seed abides in the Christian, Christians can expect, Christians can hope for, which means uh, a confident, strong assurance or understanding that they are able to keep the commands of God since God, since Christ keeps them. Since Christ keeps you, you can mark it down, you can bank on God's word that Christ keeps you and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and therefore you can walk in faith, keeping the promises of God. Will you sin? Yes, you'll sin. 
Will you keep on sinning? No, you will not. Not in the same way. Not in the same surrender to sin, so to speak. Yes, you'll sin. Yes, until the day that the Lord Jesus takes us home to be with him, you will sin. I will sin. But it won't be with a a resignation to sin. Oh, I just resign myself to sin. No, you get up and you keep fighting and you go another day. And by God's grace, you take advantage of the help of the body of Christ around you. That's why he gave us a body. The hand cannot say to the, or the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. A lot of people live in this Christian life that say, I have no need of you. I'm okay on my own. You're not, actually. Well, they hurt me last time, so, well, sure, and they're going to hurt you again. You might hurt somebody too. I mean, just one of the things we want to think of. Why does he need to be kept? Why, why does the believer need to be kept? Aren't Christians immune to temptation? Well, no, of course they're not. We're not immune to temptation, but we have ultimate victory over sin because the Son keeps you. Often we feel like our staying power in our relationship with the Lord is how well we strive. Now, I will tell you, we are to strive well. We are to break a spiritual sweat in our relationship with the Lord out of love and gratitude in confidence of future faith that God will supply all we need for life and godliness for those who know him, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. But it is Jesus, it is the Lord through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit who keeps us. The devil is malicious and he is always active. He's crafty since the beginning of time. He's always been crafty, sneaky, looking for ways, looking for times when he can come and he can snatch you. Looking for ways that he can come and he can take you out at the knees. You pull out the rug from underneath you and you think, where did that come from? Well, we're not on guard. That's where it comes from. He came to destroy the work of the Lord. But Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. And he won. And he won. And if Jesus keeps the Christian safe, the devil will not be able to harm him. Listen here, Christian. Everybody that's a Christian that names the name of Jesus, look up at me. And please listen to what the Lord is saying here. You are not under the control of and the power or oppression of Satan. You have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit within you, and Satan can affect the circumstances around you. He can tempt you, which is usually him knowing where we are already tempted from within, but that's another message. But he cannot control you. The devil devil never makes you do it. The devil never makes you do it. You have no scapegoat. Only the one who became a scapegoat when he gave his life on the cross for us. The the, the word that says touch here, and the evil one does not touch him. The word touch doesn't quite... uh, quite, quite um, hang on to it as much as, as what, we're, what we're trying to see here, what John is trying to say here. I want you to listen to what uh, Mary Magdalene says. When Jesus has, has risen from the grave and she comes back on the third day and the tomb is, I mean, the tomb is there, but Jesus' body is gone and she starts to weep and she's explaining to people, you know, why are you crying? And she's explaining, somebody's taken his body and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. 
And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you? And it took you a minute to realize who it was. That's what's happening. Jesus, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be a a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Lights on. That's him. That's him. Mary. And she turned to him and she said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher or my master. And he said, do not cling. That's our word here. The enemy, the evil one desires to cling to him. The, the evil one cannot touch him. Cling to is the idea we're talking about here. Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers and I say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. The devil does not touch, he does not harm, he does not cling to or attach himself to Christians because Jesus' Father is your Father, my Father. His God is our God. And Jesus keeps you. Christian does not persist in sin. Now that doesn't mean you don't have sometimes long patterns of sin. I've had them myself. It doesn't mean there are times when you're not very resistant to the Lord. And you say, Lord, I, I want nothing to do with what you have to say right now. And like a child stopping his feet or walking away, you sort of, you know, go down into the basement, and you, a spiritual basement, and you close the door rather hard behind you just to let the Lord know that I'll have nothing to do with you right now. But the Lord is on his timetable and he has more resources to outweigh us and to persuade us and to draw us back to him. And he's ever kind and ever gracious to draw us back to him. I've told you a story before about a season in high school when I intentionally said to the Lord, I will walk with you later in my life. Right now, I want nothing to do with you. And I am telling you, brothers and sisters, I do not know why he did not strike me dead right then. Because he's a merciful God. Amen. Amen. It's so good to see you. Amen. He is a merciful God. Jesus is speaking of his divinity in John 10, and he's explaining to everyone listening here that he has always existed before Abraham. In fact, he doesn't say I was before Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternally existent one. John 10, 27 and 30. My sheep hear my voice. Mary was one of Jesus' sheep and she heard his voice and she said, that's him. He's not the gardener. He's not the gardener. Well, he's the spiritual gardener who has tended the soil of my heart, but that's my savior. That's my Lord. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish And no one will snatch them. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Seven chapters later in uh, his high priestly prayer, he prays, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. God's children are being kept from the evil one because we belong to God, our father. Jesus's father is your father. His God is. 
You may remember an illustration I shared several weeks ago about a centurion uh, whose job it was to let Caesar pass down through the ste- down through the streets of town on the dirt roads in his chariot and keep the crowds from slowing him down, from pressing in on him too much. And so they would keep the crowds back, right, with great force and intimidation. And there's a little boy that comes running through and kind of edging his way head just above the waist of most people in the crowd. And he pulls his way through and, and, and gets through until he gets to the centurion. Well, the last time I told you that uh, the boy got to the centurion who tried to stop him. And, the, and, and so the centurion says, uh, you know, stop, or <laughs> whatever he's going to say. And then he says, that's my dad. You know, to take that same illustration a little further, if that centurion is the evil one, as soon as he lays eyes on us, he knows. That's his dad. I best get out of the way. Because I'm a Roman soldier and I've got a boss and my boss has a boss and ultimately that guy's boss answers to him or him. So I better let this child through. And the enemy looks at you and says, that's his child. And though he may try to intimidate you, he may try to tempt you, he may try to affect you, he has no charge over you because you are the son of the Most High King. You are a daughter of the Most High King and he has no sway over you. He has no control over you unless you let him. Unless you let him. Wherever you are today, whatever sin you feel trapped in, you are not trapped. You are not stopped unless you choose to stay there. I choose my sin. And somebody comes and brings a word of encouragement to you and you say, I won't hear it. I won't have anything to do with it. I stay in my place. Here I am, I remain resolved. If you have believing members of your family, the best thing you can do is not try to manipulate, but in love. And I would say according to the personality of where their disposition is in their relationship with the Lord. Some people need a tender word. Some people need a sharp, strong, loving correction. It's called rebuke. It's called admonishing. It's love. If done with humility and with the right attitude, it's love. The Bible says we need it. You need it from me at times. I need it from you at times. It's called biblical community. It's called Christian living. Satan knows he has a boss. Job went through some of the greatest trials we've seen recorded in the Bible. You know what he had to do? Get permission from God. And the Lord said, you can go this far, but stop here. Well, he's still worshiping you. Okay, now you can go this far, but stop here. John's highlighting here that that children of heaven and children of the world are, are two realities. There are children who live in this world who are children of the world. And there are children who live in this world who are children, I'm sorry, yeah, who are children of the Father. And they live in this world, but they also live in the reality of the not yet. Right? We're not home yet, but we're living like we are. 
because we're home in Jesus. We're home as we abide in him. He points out this same idea in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, when he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anything loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. I have heard people try to explain away why they love what they love or, or they don't usually say, I want to feel trapped or I want to be trapped, but their decisions show that they're making choices to be trapped. All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. Brothers and sisters, it is, it is true guilt that is produced by unrepentant, persistent sin that often keeps us from having confidence in Christ, which is intended for our prayers, which we saw in verse 16 last week, and largely for the purpose of praying for sinning brothers and sisters. I mean, that's just what the text says. You think, well, I think he's focusing that too much. If anyone sees a brother Christian committing a sin, and he's talking about sin not leading to death, he shall ask, pray, and God will give him life new life. He will be revivified, re, uh, not made alive in terms of new salvation, but he will be given new, new sustenance of life, if you will, to walk according to the spirit. And so we remember we who are in Christ are kept by the Lord who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, Galatians 1, 4 says. And we are kept by the one who rescued us, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Why? Not simply so we could just enjoy unhindered living? No, no, no. But so that we can battle in confident prayer. So that we can battle in confident prayer prayer. Christians, stop thinking that your decision to follow the Lord in obedience or disobedience only affects you. Your lack of prayer affects brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It affects brothers and sisters in Benton County and around the world. We must regain our confidence in prayer for the sake of the body. It's not just about you. It's not about me. And so our confidence in Christ empowers us. It it gives us purpose for believing prayer. So we must, as John concludes, guard ourselves from idols. We have to. We have to. He, He goes on to say in 20 and 21, we know what's true because we are in him who is true. So... Guard yourselves from idols. That's the third point, but a summation of what he says in verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that, that's important, so that we may know him who is true. Now there's head knowledge and experiential knowledge. I can know about him who is true. And as we abide in him, we can know him who is true. And that's what we're called to. That's the privilege that we have. 
And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He starts that little section with, and we, and we. It's a contrast. And, and, and we know that we are from God. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. This is an understanding that never, never should come out as, oh, I know more than you. I'm a special one. Any knowledge that we have about the Lord's grace and mercy toward us should lead to humble confidence. Confidence, yes. Humble confidence. In Luke 10, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and you've revealed them to little children. You talking about me? Little child? Yeah. John calls us children 14 times. Little children seven times in this book, this letter. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, about 40 years ago, there, were, um, there was a tribe of people who were thieved, and this tribe had uh, these stick figures as their idols. And, uh, and some profiteers came and, and stole these idols to sell them and make money. And, um, and when interviewed by uh, Newsweek, they said, the tri- one of the tribal leaders said, without idols, there could be no hope of rituals. And without the rituals, the tribe's spiritual life is in danger of, of extinction. And he said, these, these rituals bring blessings and rainfall and bountiful crops and good health and long life. And all of this is being lost to us. There are two pitfalls. There are more pitfalls, but two possible pitfalls that we'll look at this morning. One is that we might be tempted, like these tribal leaders, to look to false gods. Now, now we might think, because that's not part of our cultural heritage, that that's silly and foolish to believe in stick gods. We we might think that for Aaron and the leaders of Israel underneath Moses in that day would have thought it's ridiculous to melt down your jewelry and make a golden calf. And we'd be right. I wonder if there are other areas in our life that in hindsight will look as ridiculous one day to say, I, I prayed to the Lord to give me that for what? Why, why did I ask God for that? James 
1, 5 through 8 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we pray the desires uh, that are not rooted in proper biblical faith, when that's what we pray for, It means we're having our eyes and our hearts that are fixed, not on heaven, but on temporal things. It may not be monetary. It may not be uh, financial. It may not be um, materialistic, but we're showing that we're double-minded. We're straddling the fence, if such a thing were possible. We're straddling the fence, so to speak. One foot in the world and and one, one foot, we think, set on eternity. And in that case, you're praying in a way that treats the almighty God like a stick idol. Oh, he gives me what I want. I want rain for my crops and he brings rain. Rather than a disposition to love and worship and honor him. And yes, pray to him for rain. Out of worship and trust and humility. If there's conflict over a a biblical issue, a real important biblical issue makes you uncomfortable because you don't like conflict. You, You may just pray that the Lord will make the conflict stop. And rather than seeking a biblical resolution, you might just say, Lord, make it stop and and help everybody to like each other. It may be possible that what you're actually praying for is a very temporal prayer because you're concerned about your own discomfort with conflict. And rather than see conflict work its end in whatever the Lord would deem to be appropriate reconciliation or restoration or whatever the case might be, you might actually be praying, Lord, just make it go away, whether or not the real spiritual issue is dealt with. In that moment, God is a stick idol to you. In that moment, peace or getting along is an idol to you. Comfort away from conflict or comfort that comes from being away from conflict may be an idol to you. Rather than seeing how God will work in and through conflict to bring about his eternal ends that we at times cannot understand with our humanness in our temporal minds. If your children's behavior is inconvenient for you or or undesirable because of how people see you as a parent. And in turn, you pray that God would change their behavior without seeking genuine, humble change in their heart and a God-centered, spirit-empowered heart change. You may be seeking to see an idol of ease or being well thought of by others. We were shopping yesterday in a store and this, I don't know, four to six-year-old little girl, cute as a button, but she didn't get what her mom, I mean, she didn't get, her mom didn't give her what she wanted. And um, the sounds that came out of that child, I'm telling you, it was loud. I wouldn't even within 20 feet of her. I remember being there in a grocery store with one of my kids in a cart 
and the screaming ensues. And in that moment, I, was, I just remember almost just, I stood still, hands on the cart, and I said, Heavenly Father, help me to want what you want for him more than my own pride. Because all I could think of right now is give him whatever he wants. <laughs> Get him quiet. And you know, yesterday in the store I prayed, I just was like, Lord, give her strength. I don't know if she loves the Lord or not, but give her strength not to give her what she wants right now. Somebody told us when we were young, parent your kids when they're two and three, because that's when you're really parenting your teen. Other parenting advice not related to the sermon. Somebody told me this one time, best thing you can do for your kids is find something they really want and never give it to them. (laughs) Well, that sounds kind of mean. I was so proud of this mom because I heard that child scream in the store for like the next 30 minutes on and off, on and off, on and off. And I was like, you keep going. You keep, no, seriously. At one point I made eye contact with her and I was like, you're doing great. I'm not kidding. She looked at me kind of like, what? You don't know me. I'm like, I don't know, but I know that scream and I know she's still screaming. You're doing something right. And doing something right in the midst of something that is very uncomfortable or brings much fear means that you must have your eyes set on eternity and have a greater purpose for why you're seeking not to just make it easy. You must have a greater purpose for the eternal perspective of God to say, this is hard, this is terrible, I don't like it, but I got to keep on going. And so I pray, God, give me wisdom to know if I'm just being stubborn or if I just want what I want or if if I'm seeking the right thing and I pray according to your will that I would be. And if I'm not, change my heart. But help me to want what you want in this situation more than what I want right now. Please, God. Because this decision depends on it. What I pray for, how I pray, whether I pray, depends on whether or not I want what you want. And so we need to guard against the idolatry, John says, of seeking temporary gain in place of lasting fruit that brings benefits for the body of Christ for eternity. A second pitfall, I'll mention it and then we'll close, is that when we have having great confidence in Christ, sometimes we would be tempted to forget that we are weak. When you see someone in sin, you say, there but by the grace of God go I. Any one of us given the right opportunity and the right set of circumstances and a wrong focal perspective is susceptible of doing to do anything. There's nothing, there's nobody who ends up in prison, who says, I woke up one day and I decided that this is what I wanted my life to be. We had a discussion in middle school on Wednesday night several weeks ago and we were talking about heaven and we were talking about hell and one of the, one of the students asked a great question. Why, if, if, if heaven's an option, living with Jesus forever is an option, why would anybody ever choose hell? And I was like, that is a fantastic question. Hang with me and we will answer that question. Romans tells us it's by choosing one idol before the Lord. One thing that we love before the Lord and clinging to it. And then the Lord gives us over to that desire. And then we choose another thing that's a little bit more 
sinful a little bit more outside of our comfort zone of what we think we'd ever do. And then the Lord will turn us over to that aisle. And it is a descending and increasing pattern of ungodliness. And then you're at the point where you're doing things you thought you'd never do before. Why would anybody choose hell over eternity with the Lord? One decision at a time. One decision at a time. What, what he's talking about here is what Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they don't have it all. Those who, who know they've not done anything to deserve their salvation and they're not trying to prove themselves to the Lord. They're humble. They're poor in spirit. And they have an increasing gratitude for all that the Lord has done in their lives. When, 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 when you have that disposition which is still by the grace of God. We approach the throne of grace with confidence, according to Hebrews 4.16, and we know that we receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. You approach the throne of grace for yourself, and you approach the throne of grace for others, because the fact that we are a body means that we are meant to do life together, to find biblical teaching and help in everyday life empowered by the Spirit of God. It's a must in the life of the believer. Brothers, sisters, confidence in your position in Christ as God's true child empowers believing prayer. And so you must, I must, guard ourselves from idols so you're free to enjoy living out what it means to be wholehearted followers of Christ.